Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thank you for tuning in. Today's guest is Ellis Valentine. There is no one better than Ellis Valentine. What a delight this was. What a treat. What a wonderful, wonderful man. I uh, have great admiration, respect, and love for Mr. Ellis Valentine, who I've become friends with over the last few years. Terrific ball player back in the day. Uh, most famously from the Montreal Expos. This is one of several podcasts that I recorded recently in Montreal. There was a big banquet, and I was fortunate enough to record Larry Parrish, which was last week. Ellis uh, as well. Kenny Hill is coming up soon. Uh, and what a great time with Ellis. I think if you, uh, even casual baseball fans might know this, the backstory, a wonderful, wonderful player. And frankly, his career was cut short by injuries and also drug abuse. Uh, he partied quite hard, even by the standards of the, his era of the late seventies and early eighties and it cost him. And, uh, Ellis gets into regret and he gets into sobriety, which is now three decades of sobriety after, uh, fighting with, uh, drug addiction for quite a while. Fascinating stuff. The way that he stepped up for his family when they needed him, the way that he got his life in order, all the stuff that he does in, the, in his community uh, in the Dallas area. It's wonderful. Really, really special. Uh, I was sitting in, uh, it was myself, Ellis, uh, who I'm pretty good, decent friends with, as well as my girlfriend, Amy, who's also very close with Ellis. And the three of us just sat and it was, it was great. It was, it was really, really cool, uh, just to be, Part of that uh, conversation with Ellis and uh, to just learn a lot about what it means to self-actualize and become a human being and all that. Uh, I think we'd all like to get to that place where we kick our demons and move forward and do all the great things we need to do. And uh, kudos to this guy. Kudos to Ellis Valentine. Kudos also, segue, <laughs> to this week's sponsor. That is SeatGeek. Listen, friends. SeatGeek, you know this already. It is the best place to buy and sell tickets to anything you could possibly imagine. And it is baseball season. And I have used SeatGeek on many occasions for baseball tickets. And they are fantastic. It's the tickets that you want, the price that you want, to the games that you want. You Maybe the best tickets might be behind home plate one day for the bang, best bang for the buck. Or maybe it's in the bleachers or the upper deck or down the first baseline. What have you. It's a color-coded map. Makes it easy to use. They're fantastic. I'm a big, big fan. I've used them not only for baseball, hockey, concerts, any event that you can imagine, they are great for that. And how about this? If you download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code Jonah, you'll get $20 off of your first SeatGeek purchase. Yes, that is right. Download the free SeatGeek app, enter the promo code Jonah, and you'll get $20 off of your first SeatGeek purchase. It's that easy to get 20 bucks off your first purchase to baseball, basketball, hockey, highlight, mahjong, basket weaving, probably. I'm making this stuff up at the end. But yes, you SeatGeek, they're great. And thank you to SeatGeek for sponsoring the podcast. Hey, check out my stuff at uh, CBS Sports. I recently, speaking of Expos, and that banquet, the headliner was actually going to be uh, Rusty Staub. Rusty left us, uh, unfortunately, passed away recently. And uh, another great and fascinating man, great ball player as well. So I did a little bit on Rusty Staub for CBS Sports, which you can check out over there. Um, and also I am writing regularly this season for sportsnet.ca. Uh, I have my MLB trade value series, which I did recently there. I did some preseason projections for various Jays players recently, and I've got a piece coming out this week that's going to talk about Josh Donaldson. And, uh, what if he doesn't play third base? What if he does DH? Are the Jays that much worse off? Let's explore. So we'll get into all that good stuff too. 
And yes, please go enjoy this edition of the podcast. It means a lot to me. It was a special chat. It is with Ellis Valentine. Enjoy. How are you? I'm good, Jonah. How are you? I'm great. It's, um, yeah, I, we, I do a lot of these, and uh, it's rare that I get to do one with an actual friend. Usually it's, oh, well, so-and-so is interesting, and we're going to go chat, and it's nice to feel like we know some stuff about each other, and so yeah. if anything, we can get a little bit more intimate and all that good stuff. Sure. We've hung out and had dinner and lunch. And uh, of course we have. Yeah, so it's a good thing. And, and then plus, I the part that I like about these podcasts is that can learn about the other person. You know, we've had these chats. I'll ask something. I'm sure there's going to be something I've never heard before. So we'll see how it goes. Um, I want to start by talking about growing up in L.A. in the 60s and what that was like. I had Ozzy Smith on my podcast, who's not that far away in age from you, and he just talked about his experiences and what it was like growing up and how he got into baseball and all that. Uh, how was it for you? What did your childhood look like? Childhood was very busy in yeah. terms of athletics, for sure. Um, <clears throat> Los Angeles had, you know, it had the nine-year-old baseball, you know, startup thing back then where, yeah. you know, the T-ball for age four thing wasn't happening. Right. However, <clears throat> I was very active in the, in the neighborhood throwing rocks, bottles, whatever, up and down the street. Uh-huh. And, uh, my mom was a beautician. <clears throat> So she had many people in and out of her shop that told her, you know, you need to get that young kid into organized baseball. Mm. Now, you know, at the time I was seven. Yeah. You had to be nine. So they kind of doctored my birth certificate. <laughs> So that I could play with the nine-year-olds. You're probably a so, decent-sized kid. You could probably play. I, I was their size. Yeah. I was a nine-year-old size. Yeah. At seven. So I played up all of my baseball career. Yeah. And uh, I got started. Uh, a gentleman came out <clears throat> to, I guess, to try me out for the team. Uh, the thing is Grover Strickland. Oh, that's a great his, uh His daughter is on my Facebook page. He's passed away now. He's... You know, uh, had an accident and died years ago, but yeah. he, uh, <clears throat> came out to kind of give me a tryout. So he gave me a ball and a glove. I didn't have any, I didn't have a glove at the time. I threw two balls to him. Yeah. And he turned and went to my mom and shook her hand <laughs> and left. And I was on the team the next day. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know if he can hit, but he could throw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely have one tool. And, uh, so I was on the team the next day as a pitcher. And, uh, Dan, Dan Ford. Yeah. You no, know, Dan, Dan Ford and I yeah. grew up together. 
played together. And okay. he was on that team. Now, yeah. Andy's a couple years older than me. Mm-hmm. So I was playing on the team. Because he was actually nine. <laughs> or 11 or whatever. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So. Um, it's interesting, the idea of playing at a higher level. I had Doug Landville on the podcast recently. By the way, he talked extensively. He grew up in Jersey, and he was a Phillies fan. He said, my God, that Valentine. <laughs> he was the coolest, but I also hated that guy because I was such a Phillies fan. He was like, that guy at Dawson hated those guys. And it's funny. I did two podcasts in a row. I did one with Dave Zyron, who's a great author and writer, too. And he's like, oh, Ellis Valentine. He's the coolest. If you ever run into Ellis Valentine, let him know. So two in a row have talked about you. And Doug, who was not a big guy growing up, and never was a, all that big, but he talked about the value of playing to a higher level. He had an older brother who was like seven years older. Mm-hmm. So he'd get invited into, you know, Sandlot games or organized games or whatever. He was just much younger than everybody. Mm-hmm. And that idea of challenging yourself at an early age, I would have to think would help your development because it's, all right, well, if I'm going to beat these kids, I have to play better. So I'm wondering if that was a factor for you of skills-wise, just, oh, yeah, you know, I bet my hand-eye coordination has to be as good as somebody two, three years older, if that played a role at all. Mm. You know, it, not a, not a mental uh, psycho uh, uh, role in my in my world. Yeah. Uh, I just knew that I was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... I'm not saying that to be arrogant or anything of that nature. I just, it it was there. I was able to throw. I was able to hit. I was able to run. I was able to do all these things. And throughout my entire, you know, young life in sports, I always played up. Yeah. Or never played freshman, never played JV, always varsity, even in football. Interesting. And, um, Basketball, I was just too lazy for basketball. <laughs> <I was laughs> That's good. a high energy sport. I was good. Marcus Johnson's dad it was one of my teachers. Oh my gosh. And, uh, he used to tell Marcus how good of a basketball player I was in junior high school because uh, I went to, uh, John Muir Junior High School. Yeah. Crenshaw wasn't built yet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I went to John Muir. Marcus' dad and mom was one of my teachers, both of them. And, uh, Marcus didn't know me. Then, Zedman, yeah, as a basketball player, yep. and football player, and baseball, and, you know, and, 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 and uh, so I was on a radio show with Marcus once, and Marcus was telling me, I know about your baseball career, and a lot of that, said, but my dad told me that you could really play basketball, and I told him, yeah, that's pretty good, I said, but. He said, well, why didn't you continue? I said, I'm, I was lazy. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I was yeah. lazy. I, you know, basketball, you ran 30 laps before practice and 30 laps after practice. Well, I quit on the 60th lap. <laughs> With I'm out. Mr. West, I, I'm done. I can't do this. But that was high school. and So I never played basketball, but I did play football and baseball. Marcus is a radio host in L.A., so I assume that's where you did the show. Yeah, I've was. been on a show, too. And all I do is talk to him about white men can't jump. I can't get over ah. because that's not it's the pinnacle. How if you're in white man, it doesn't matter that you played at UCLA yeah. and with Milwaukee. That makes no difference. You were in white man can't jump. That's the thing. It's amazing. Um, the idea of playing multiple sports is interesting because, as you know, modern athletes don't do that. If you are a baseball player, you are a baseball player. You're playing year round. You go to a perfect game or these skills camps, things like that. If basketball, you're traveling a whatever, and the crossover. You know, like I just how I did a podcast with Larry Parrish, your friend, yesterday. Of course he played basketball. Of course he played football. Dave Winfield not only played those sports, 
but was drafted multiple sports. Tony Gwynn, the guys of your generation or just before, whatever, just after, everybody did that. Sure. What do you make of being a specialized athlete from the time that you're eight to doing what you did, to having those multiple skills? Do you see advantages, disadvantages? Because I could kind of see it either way. I see a disadvantage because, yeah. uh, I'll give you an example, um, you know, you limit yourself in a, in a box if I, I, I only do this. Yeah. And I, I run into it in baseball because I do lessons with with kids now, and, and the problem really boils down to the parent, right, or the person that made the child. Some people really just not parents. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. I, I, I just got to be truthful, okay? Um, being in the counseling field for a long time, I, I, I kind of know that. You know, there's people that can just make children. Yes. You know, and. Uh, so I can't, I don't have the privilege or the right to say that no one should, you shouldn't have a child. Right. But some folks, it's just not there. Yeah. The developmental mindset to prepare a child. And so in sports, the same thing kind of rolls over where parents kind of funnel their child into a, into a, 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 a one channel, mm-hmm. you know, a one lane highway, uh, and and that's not good. Uh, you know, my son only plays shortstop, and he pitches. That's it. Yeah, I was drafted by the Montreal Expos as a pitcher. Yeah, first baseman. Mm-hmm. Never pitched. Never played first. No. So if I would come into the Expo organization and say, "Oh no, 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 I'm a pitcher." First baseman, nah, I'm not playing right field. We wouldn't be having this conversation. Well, of course. <laughs> you know, we wouldn't be doing this. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe. Well, they had a, the experts had a real knack for that developmentally. We had talked uh, off the cuff about how Carter was drafted a different, everybody was drafted a different position. It was just, you just figured it out. Yeah. Reigns came, was a second baseman, went to the outfield. It, it all ended up that way. Yeah. When you um, were drafted, and you and I have talked about this before, but I found this to be such a, an affecting story, uh, you get drafted and you were going to go to the Florida State League, but there had to be a stopover. There was a logistical issue where you had to spend a short amount of time in Jamestown, New York. That was not your favorite time, from what I understand. I had I no understand. idea I was going to Jamestown. Yeah. Uh, and it was uh, very, I guess, uh, powerful Yeah. Uh, for me to see that uh, coming from Los Angeles. You know, I played with Cromartie's, uh, guys like Larry Doby Johnson, yeah. guys from the South. Yeah. You know, and I, to me, Florida is the deepest part of the South you can go to. Yeah. Just, that's the way I look at it. Mm-hmm. And Florida was really rough. However, Jamestown was interesting <laughs> because I get off the plane I don't know where I flew into at the time. I'm 17 years old. And John McHale Jr. picks me up. Uh, and we drive for two and a half hours to Jamestown. So I don't know where we flew into. But yeah. anyway, drove for two and a half hours to Jamestown. Now, I grew up in South Central L.A. My school was, I went to a black high school. Yep. And black junior high school. Somewhat mixed elementary school uh, and Catholic school up till the fifth grade, but then elementary school somewhat. <clears throat> the things have changed, and so coming out of South Central LA with um, Crenshaw High, 
we had one Hispanic kid in our school and a couple of Asian kids, and that was it. Wow. That was it. Um, so they flew me in to New York, and then I went to Jamestown. Now, I saw one person of color in Jamestown. In the whole town? When I was there, for, I was there for three days. Third days, they shipped me out of there. Yeah. And the first day in, I was kind of, you know, hey, this is going to be different. So then <clears throat> the next day, I decided to walk out because uh, the, the baseball field was kind of like this this little neighborhood. And the baseball field was in the middle and had houses all around. Mm-hmm. You know, no big fences or anything like that. So you could see all the houses. Yeah. And, porch swings and the whole works. My mindset was everything was white to me. Everybody was white. Yeah. And so the little corner store was run by white guy and this lady over here on the porch on her swing and it looked like to me the trees was white. The <laughs> birch. Was white. It was birch. It was all birch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the grass was white. I mean, that's what I pictured. So anyway, the second day I decided to get out after, you know, the jet lag and the whole works. Is, and uh, I decided to go to that little store, the little corner store, you know, and got the cookies on the counter and mm-hmm. the little jar and the pickles and whatever. And in the back they had like a pool hall. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, a pool table, put it that way. And a little, one of those, uh, table bowling things. Yep, yep. You know. And, uh, so, I look back there, and there's a guy that looks like me. Yes. <laughs> he looked like me, so I'm, I'm like, okay, let me at least go and say hi. He was from Puerto Rico. Did not speak a word of English. <laughs> <laughs> Did not speak a word of English. And, uh, oh, man. Uh, <laughs> It devastated me. Yeah. I'm like, back to the hotel room, and I was depressed. Oh, man. This is your first experience in professional ball, or at least getting toward professional ball. You're like, I've achieved my dream. I've been drafted. I'm going to play professional baseball. And this is what happens. Yeah. So I go back. I'm I'm, I'm messed up. Yeah. I'm messed up. So, you know, I'm I'm just trying to figure all this out. So the next day, they farm me out to uh, Florida. Yeah. You know, to rookie ball. And, uh, so. It's interesting because teams, I think they're getting a little bit better about this, but I've found maybe even more so with Latin born players who speak no, who are people of color and also don't speak the language. Correct. And they get sent off to Montana or wherever it is. Mm-hmm. And there is nothing. There is no infrastructure. There is no people who speak their language. There's no people who look like them. They don't, where do they go to get? The food that they're used to, you know, what, why are they, it, it just feels weird. Uh, I'm wondering about that, you know, in your experience, and obviously you ended up going to Florida and places that were a little bit more familiar, although Quebec City would be a different experience too, but do you feel like, how important is it to have those resources to have people who look like you or talk like you, or even can be a roving instructor who can come into town and say, okay, I'm going to spend some time with you because these are Kids, kids, you were a kid. Sure. You know, somebody's coming from Venezuela as a kid who doesn't even speak the language. I, I would think that's just got to be the kind of thing where even if you have a great fastball, you can get thrown off mentally and then you can go off track. Yeah, you can. Yeah. 
I think it's uh, it, it boils down to a faith thing more so than anything uh. else for individuals, no matter what you know ethnicity you are. Um, you know, you, you know, we learn safety in the sandbox as kids. Mm-hmm. You know, as as, as as babies, and uh, if this is not right, we're out. You know, it's like we I gotta go. Yeah. Uh, I think it's more of that thing. However, right now, the one thing that is in support of the Latin players, there's many of them. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Even back when I broke in, the one thing that was good, uh, for me, once I got, you know, the Florida State League and so on and so forth, there were more black players in baseball. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was like I was the only black guy on the team. You know what I mean? Uh, so <clears throat> that was good then. Now, not so good. But I think that safety factor is is relevant to all cultures if they're in an environment that is different than what they were used to, you know, accustomed to growing up uh, and being around. So I think that factor is, 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 is huge for the Latin culture that there are more Latin players. Now, if there was a black player... Mm-hmm. Nowadays, which there's probably one on a team. Yeah, it's really gone down. I mean, yeah. if that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really rough because now there's no coaches to relate to. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's black people in the world, but not on the field. Yeah. And so I, it, it's, it's a real, uh, difficult thing. I, I, I believe right now that we're dealing with, with, uh, that world and it's been, changing since I'd say mid eighties. What happened? I really don't know. Yeah. I think that uh you know, I think that baseball has its way culturally and dealing and doing things. But that era of Jackie Robinson coming in and the movement of black players coming in, I it, to me it seems like baseball said, Okay, we did that. <laughs> it's horrible. <laughs> yeah. We did that. We don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. They pay lip service to it. They talk about the RBI baseball program and things like that. We're yeah, still waiting on it. Retired 42 number and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. So it, 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 it's tough because I see a lot of young black athletes today in high school, middle school, whatever. They don't even go out for baseball. And you know they can play it. Do they perceive it as a white sport? They it perce- feels to me as a white person that it is a white it sport. They don't, they're not wanted. Hmm. If I don't see me, yeah. I presume I'm not welcome there. You got a couple of McCutcheons and yeah. much else. I mean, come on one hand. Yeah. It's, and that's the sad part. I mean, up until 2008, a little black kid going around talking about becoming the president of the United States, we'd have committed him to a mental institution. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but now, it's possible. Yeah, which is, I mean, that part is certainly encouraging. It's, I wonder how that might, we're getting, we're going to bounce back, but okay. um, staying on this train, because football, people are starting to think twice about it. I wonder if it could, it could come around that everybody's very aware of head trauma. Everybody's very aware of the NFL and it's not going to be the case everywhere. You know, you're going to have some kids who are going to be like, I don't care. I want to be a DB or quarterback. It doesn't matter in the lineman, but it, I'm wondering if that could play in that maybe not this generation, but like the kids that come up 10 years from now, 
Because if you're six foot eleven, you're going to play basketball, not football, not baseball. But if you're six three and you're a good athlete, maybe you do go to work baseball because football is, you know, your parents say, "Heck no, you're not. There's no way you're going to go do that. Go do this other thing." I can only hope so, but I do believe that the landscape needs to change. Yeah. Um, so that when they do go there, there's a safer feel uh, for 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 going here because I know that I. Just, I Watch the struggles now in high school baseball. Yeah. Uh, with the few black players that do play. Uh, and I, and I also watch the developmental, the lack of developmental, uh, process from the coaching down. Mm-hmm. You know, the coaches are really not baseball coaches. To developmentally structure a young player with talent for, you know, in, in bettering his potential yeah. in time. Cause they're really football coaches held over and given a stipend until football season starts, especially in Dallas. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, especially in Dallas. Anywhere in Texas. And so I'm seeing football coaches coach baseball. Yeah, which is not that helpful. Yeah. For, and for you, you know, you mentioned the lack of developmental process. My goodness, you had the best of the best. I mean, I talked to LP about Mel Didier and the enormous impact that he had. Yeah. Uh, we're going to get to Carl Keel. Don't in forget a, Carl Keel. We're going to get yeah. to Keel in a second because I know they yes. have a lot to say about him. But one guy who I wanted to bring up is Larry Doby. Yes. Doby in two ways helped. First of all, Larry Doby was a magnificent ball player and a great baseball mind. And number two, he happened to have the skin, same skin color as you. And, and that was somebody that you could look up to as an instructor that – Keel was great too, but here's somebody who, you know, possibly you could relate to in a, on a certain level. And also, he brought these great skills. What was uh, Doby's impact on you coming up? Huge. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very, very positive. Um, I d- wasn't able to understand Larry's intensity and his anger mm. until later, um, after I started to go through some. You know, some, uh, psychological and mental developmental, you know, challenges for myself. And, uh, then I was starting to look back and reflect back on some of the things that were angry. Uh, Dobie was very angry, very angry man. Um, because of the generation that he came up in. And, uh, things that he did not get. Yeah. That Jackie got. Yeah. The second guy. Yeah. yeah. He never got it. Yeah. And I didn't, I, I, I didn't understand uh, huh. the enormity of that, uh, until later. And then I was able to put it all together after I'd gone through all this psychological development stuff for me. And then I started to become a counselor and I had to do all of these educational classes and get credentials and all that. And I started to understand the developmental brain and all that stuff and, and emotions and whatever. Mm-hmm. And now I was able to reflect back on not only Dobie, but a lot of other folks. However, you know, Doby had a huge impact on me as a uh, young player coming up. Um, and I think some of his anger rubbed off on me. In a good way or no? And I think he just introduced me to it. Yeah. That you have permission to be upset about things. That's because I started to see the injustices. Yeah. To a degree. I didn't know how deep his was until later. Right. But some of the things that, you know, he, you know, he, he encouraged me to stand firm on certain things and, 
and I did. And when I came up to the Expos uh, organization, I saw some of these uh, inadequacies that really affected me. Mm. And it bothered me like hell, uh, you know, like crazy. I knew the Expos didn't want to give me any time on the contract, but they gave it to Gary Carter. Right. You know, and yeah, <laughs> you know, so it's hard to get around. That. And so it was, it was tough for me to accept that. And I'm sitting here and I'm going, really? Now I'm, I'm in the meat part of the lineup and I'm doing all these things. So, um, I, I started to get introduced to anger because growing up in LA, I didn't, I didn't have to be angry about anything. You had the life that you wanted. You know, I had the life I wanted. Your parents I mean, you know, were. Parents were there for me. Could get what you wanted. You know, I, I got a car in 11th grade, you know, and played ball all the time. You know, we ate every day. I had shoes. Yeah. You know, I didn't have these challenges that Andre had. Andre came up, you know, Andre had two pair of pants and five t-shirts and a windbreaker. Yeah. And I'm walking around in tailored clothes. Yeah. <laughs> You know, looking good, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm styling. Oh yeah, yeah, I have no I doubt about that. <laughs> <laughs> I was clean, man. <laughs> you know, we uh, sitting with we, uh, with we, Amy, our, my girlfriend, your good friend Amy, and we're, we're all enjoying this very much. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> we we uh, I came up, I came up in the Superfly era. Yeah, you know, Ron O'Neill and the Cadillac and all that stuff, and uh, so. I uh, I could just just so happen I played baseball very well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what was it about Carl Keel that made him so good at what he did, and what was it that made him so able to reach you and help mold you into a better ball player? Carl taught me uh, a, a, a a a I guess uh, gave me the ability to be passionate about something. Mm-hmm. He worked with me in, 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 in Memphis every day. I mean, hot. I mean, sweating. Yeah. And he threw to me every day. His arm never quit. And this was before practice every day. Wow. We were coming out an hour before. And he, I was, I was a decent hitter, but I wasn't a power hitter. And, uh, uh, he, uh, he, he, he really, Kind of taught me about the passion part of it. Hmm. Uh, I was very passionate with it, with what I was doing with the expos. And uh, when I got called up that, that year. Yeah. And come up, you know, go to Philadelphia, um, we play and, uh, I didn't get any hits, but I played. Yeah. And I did get an assist. I threw out Tim McCarver. Wow! My first outfield assist on their first game. Uh, I don't. Yeah, I, I think yeah, it was the first game I played. And yeah, it, I think it was the first game I played. I'm picturing McCarver really broadcasting, remember, but yeah, it was, I was. It was such a. But I do remember that because it was a base hit, right center field. Yeah. And it was kind of like the throw that I made when I threw out Pete Rose at third. That's on film. Da da da. It's the same same play. Yeah. And McCarver, you know, being the base runner that he is, he wasn't fast or anything, but it was a situation where you had to go first to third. Yeah, it was instinctive, yeah. And I threw him out by probably <laughs> 10 feet, okay? And I I saw him get up and look. Who's that kid? <laughs> you know, because they didn't know yet. I mean, they knew I was coming up and all. Yeah. But um, I do remember that. But uh, I, I was just... I was running on that passion that 
that Carl had instilled in me in Memphis, and I was just, I was just, just, just full of it, just feeling it. Hmm. And then we went to Montreal, and I hit my first home run off uh, Rooker. Yeah, the Pirates got my first base hit and my first home run, and um, that was really not an easy home run hitting Jerry Park. You know, no. wind blowing in. Jerry yeah, Park. for right-handed hitters way, especially. Yeah, yeah, I hit the thing way up in the stands. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was deep up there, three quarters of the way up. Oof. And so I felt good about that. Um, when it comes to having a throwing arm, mm-hmm. obviously God-given talent is going to play a big role. Mm-hmm. Yours was accurate. Yes. You know, there were guys who could gun it, mm-hmm. um, but yours was accurate. Was this just one of those Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours you just throw and throw until you get good at it? How do you hone accuracy like you had? Because it was... State. I mean, you were a five-two player, no question. But to this day, you know, if people talk about you, I feel like the arm has got to be up there. It was just, oh my god, this guy's arm! Like it was, it was unreal. The accuracy. It was kind of like, you know, I was watching this movie. I was telling you, I was watching this movie Shooter last yeah. night. Yeah. They're calculating with these mile shots. You know, uh, they're calculating the wind. You know, the the, the humidity and yeah. this and that. Yeah. All of that played a factor. And throwing the baseball for me because mm-hmm. by the time I threw the baseball, I had already thrown the guy out in my mind. You visualized it. Yeah. That's cool. It just had not reached third base yet. Huh. They were still at the plate. They were still at, you know, first base. They were still, you know. So, in other words, I had already gone there. Before every pitch, I would play the whole scenario ball hit in front of me, behind me, to mm-hmm. the left of me, to the right of me. Da da da. Who's running? Who's pitching? Where they, this person hits the ball the majority of the time? What kind of positioning I would have to be in to make that play? Mm-hmm. Whether I'd have to do a, a pivot, a turn, whatever. All that played into the factor all, as a factor while I was looking in the stands at girls and all. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd gone through all of that in my mind prior to the play. The play just hadn't happened yet. I did a podcast with J.J. Reddick, who plays for the Philadelphia 76ers, and he was talking about visualization. I find this so interesting because I'm, mm-hmm. I was not a high-level athlete, so I just didn't reach that level. Okay. And he said that he was, we were talking, and it was in his house, and he said that while I was looking him in the eye and we were talking, he had visualized 35 jump shots. He what, he could not turn it off. Mm-hmm. And we were having an engaging conversation. Mm-hmm. He's a very smart guy, and he just was picturing shooting threes sure, sure, literally sure. while looking at this doofus interviewing him, and I just thought this was an amazing <laughs> thing. <laughs> Does that go away? You're, you know, in your 60s, you're gardening, you're with your grandkids or whatever. Do you still have the visualization of throwing people? Does that mental thing ever turn off? Does it go away the day that you retire? Do you always have something like that? I've been labeled a forward thinker. Yeah. And that's not just with baseball, it's with most stuff. Yeah. Uh, And so I don't see the negative. You know, people might think it's a negative, but I'm already there. I'm uh-huh. already over here where a lot of folks are stuck right here. Yeah. And and they're perceiving what I'm saying is negative because they're not there yet. Uh-huh. So there, but, but I've already, I'm already calculating because if I get there, I want to know what to do. I don't want to get there and go, Oh shit. <laughs> no, you can swear all you want. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't, I don't want to go there and say that. Yeah. I want to go there and know you know, I, I want to respond. I don't want to react. Yeah. And uh, that's the way I've always been. And um, that was that was the, the playing. I, I, I do the same thing 
and hitting. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'd sit there and I'd watch other guys that hit like me. And I know this pitcher can only have so many pitches. Yeah. And in so many situations and scenarios, he's going to throw this pitch. So I would pick out a Tony Perez. I'd pick out the other guys like a, a Earl Williams. Yeah. When he played with mm-hmm. the Expos. I'd pick out these guys, Nate Colbert. I, I wasn't looking at Andre and Cromartie. Different kinds of swings. Yeah. Well, they're they're like me. Yeah. They're kid. Yeah, yeah. I can't, you know, I'm looking at guys that were older than me. Yeah. That been there, done that. And I'm watching them. And so I'm sitting on the bench, and I'm, I'm watching what they throw them. And I'm saying, you know, I got to guess a little bit here that uh, you're going to have to throw me that pitch, too. Mm-hmm. And so if I get in that situation, uh, you know, now I respond to it. In the uh, 1977 All-Star Game, First of all, the fact that you made your all, the All-Star game less than a year and a half after breaking in is remarkable. And I love the fact, this is not done anymore, but there was a throwing contest with mm-hmm. you and Winfield and Dwight Smith and Dave Parker. Mm-hmm. My God, I wish we had that now. I, I wish that was on film. Tell, yeah, I know, right? T- tell me about that because it's like, you know, now you have the home run derby and all this stuff, but this was just skills at its rawest. You're sizing up these guys. Winfield was this, you know, phenom and was just so touted to the moon and Cobra too. And uh, what was that like, just going mano to mano in that way? Not against a pitcher, but against guys who had somewhat similar skill sets to you. Actually, it wasn't really a competition. Okay. You know, uh, people tend to think that it was, but it was a part of baseball that that they don't do now. It's called infield practice. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And uh, we just happened to be four peacocks out there. I think Reggie Smith was out there with us as well. Mm -hmm. Um. You happen to be... I said Dwight Smith. I was thinking of the Cubs outfielder from the late 80s. Or yeah, okay. Reggie Smith. Yeah, Reggie and uh, Dave and Dave and Dave. Yeah. And uh, we were just throwing infield. Everybody was taking their turn throwing, and, you know, guys was trying to one-up another, you know, and I won. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we had a great time. It was really fun. Yeah. I, I, like I said, I was, I was gifted with a good throwing arm and accuracy. But my footwork was probably the key to all of that, mm. um, and I, I give I give a lot of uh, credit to how I position my, my my feet. You talked about work ethic. You talked about working with Carl Keel. Mm-hmm. You talked about when you were a kid and playing basketball, and it didn't click for you because you didn't feel that you had enough drive. You are so no, young. No, I didn't feel like I had enough oh. drive. I was just lazy. Lazy. All right. Say that it like wasn't driving. Mean, you know, <laughs> I think lazy and drive is two different things. Yeah. I didn't want to run that much. See, I like baseball. Yeah. You can go sit down for a little That's bit. true. That's true. <laughs> if we had a long inning, you had a pitcher out there or whatever that, yeah. was, that was doing some wrong things, we can, we can chill for a minute. But, <laughs> you know, I, I, I didn't want to, I wasn't, I didn't want to be moving all the time. For sure. So, baby, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> so, um, is it tempting to get complacent when you break in? You've been a dominant athlete. You come up, you make the all-star team. You're going up against Winfield and these guys. You've already made it. You know how good you are. You hear about guys like Kobe and MJ and these guys were jerks supreme. And you, by all accounts, we're going to get into this later. 
perceived as the nicest guy and all this stuff. But this idea of being consumed by the obsession with I have to do this all the time and clenching your fists and trying so hard all the time. Can it go the other way if you're a young guy, you've achieved this stuff, and you're like, all right, I'm in good shape. How was it for you at that moment, you know, around 77, 78, when you're like, okay, I'm in my prime right now. Are you like, oh, I need to be the best player in the universe? Or are you thinking, okay, I'm good. Let's see how this goes. No, I just wanted to play the game. Yeah. I, I didn't have that kind of personal obsession to prove anything. Yeah. Uh, to anybody else or even to myself. Uh, I knew that I was able to do this, and I just wanted to go out there and do it. I just wanted people to let me alone, leave me alone, let me do that. Yeah. But people wanted me to be great, and I just wanted to be good hmm. at it. I just wanted to make it happen and be a part of it. Shit, I'm not the whole damn team. It's, you know. That was, that was a good team, yeah. There's none of us out there. I just want to do my part. Yeah. And I, I thought I did my part. The problem was the organization wanted more from me mm-hmm. because they wanted more for them. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I understand that. But then, you know, we never had this kind of conversation, conversation, gentlemen, with, with the organization folks. It, it was always, well, what you're not. Hmm. And so I, I kind of lived this, this, this life with the expo organization of shame that I was not living up to their personal expectations of me. So, you know, that shame and guilt was being thrown at me every day. Oh, gosh. And I was sitting there trying to fight it off. Yeah. You and know, you're still a kid. I'm, I'm just a kid. Basically, I'm just a child with a, with a lot of money. Yeah. And, um, you know, at that time, it was not money like today, but it was good money. Sure. But I lived that shame-based lifestyle when I played for the Expos because I, I felt like I wasn't good enough hmm. for from for them. Yeah. I, I didn't feel that way about me personally. I felt that that was the feeling coming to me from them. Shame and guilt are the, the two emotions that are given by other people. Right. You don't you don't get that. I, I relate that to the show, the movie with Tom Hanks. He didn't become guilty of himself until he created Wilson. The soccer ball. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. He had no shame, no guilt, no nobody watching. And so it's fine, but it came from them twenty four seven. Yeah, they give Gary Carter all of this. If Gary Carter had to hit that first home run at, at Montreal, yeah, see, it'd be a monument outside for sure. That's just my feeling. Okay, yeah. I got nothing for for the things that that I did. So I just did the best I could uh, for the years that I was there. And then when I got mm-hmm. traded, they didn't need to trade me to get a Jeff Reary. No. They could have moved David Palmer to the bullpen. They could have done lots of things. There was was many other choices or things they could have done. Yeah. So it was just their chance or permission to move me out and start to really go to work on the rest of the lineup, and they did. I mean, you know, next right after that, Larry Parrish leaves. You know, I know Larry was injured and da-da-da. Really? Yeah. You know, so because guys was coming to me and saying, you got traded, it freaked us out. We all were like, I can go any minute. Oh, yeah. And so it was, it was some serious shockwaves, uh, through the, you know, the, the, the rank and file when I left. 
Shit. A lot of them, a lot of them just <clears throat> were not relieved, but a lot of them had, you know, really not supported me because if they felt like they supported me, that the team was going to do something to them. Because the team was not on your side. No, not at the time. I don't. It's it's a it's a thing about a funny thing about shame and guilt. We're better now. You know, we're better about mental health and people seek therapy and they do we these things. We think we are. We think we are. We're trying to be. We're least. not better about it because people are not getting the help they need. We, we can't get the help. And I, I assume you did not have the support system there. That you didn't, the mental health counselors that our teammates were, you couldn't sit down with Crow and he would give you three hours on how, she, oh, it's okay, shame and guilt are fine or whatever. I would think that you would have to be on your own to some extent. I was. Yeah. And the only way that I could cope with it was to do what I did. Yeah. And that was my tool because it, it just, I wasn't doing it for a party. <laughs> people think that most people that are using are doing this for party and fun. No. Emotional coping. That's medicine. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I did what I did. You don't put industrial street chemicals like that in your body for fun. Right. <laughs> you know, so. And how... Once that cycle st- starts, I assume it's got to be so hard to stop, especially in that town at that time. My, I'm sure you could do it in Iowa or whatever, too, but late 70s, early 80s in Montreal, mm-hmm. everything is plentiful. Sure. There are teammates around you who are, that if you wanted to go out, you have running mates if you want to. I, I have to imagine that would be really difficult to be like, nah, I'm going to kick this. Like I, 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 I would think that it would just... Maybe you're in the cycle. You do you even think about kicking it, or are you just like, no, I'm just going to keep going. And no, you want to protect yourself. Yeah, it's somewhat of a shield for you, and that's all it is. Yeah, and that's why people can't understand uh, the the overall dynamics of it because it takes so much to break through those layers. You know, the onion, da 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 da. You mm-hmm. get down to the core. It you know, you got a lot. That you have to work with first. So the only way you can do this with time. Yeah. You know, that's why when they give these guys a, a year suspension or whatever and, and they still get their money, year suspension with no money, that'll wake your ass up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know for I mean? real. I mean, when you start to lose the money, see a lot of these guys get the year suspension, but they still got money. Yeah. Okay. So when you don't have that anymore, I wasn't broke when baseball was over. I know we're getting way down to yeah. what really happened, but I wasn't broke when baseball was over, but I had made a promise to my family that I was going to retire them. And so when my career came up short, all the income that I had, additional income outside of baseball, uh, I turned over to my parents because my commitment, my word to them was, Mom, you are not going to be a hair beautician anymore. And dad, you can retire as well. Now, my dad only stayed on with the city of Los Angeles with um, the sanitation department so that when he retired, he would retire with full benefits yep. for him and my mom. That's the only reason he stayed on. Mm-hmm. And he stayed on and went to work every day. I mean, every day. When he retired, he had to take off 13 months before he could officially retire. Wow. Because he had 13 months of sick time and vacation Holy time. cow. 13 months. 13 months. He sat at home 
for 13 months. And I assume they don't give you two months of vacation per year. That's like two weeks at a time for four years or whatever it is. And I watched this, and I'm sitting here, and I'm going, That's working. Really? Yeah. I mean, he went to work, rain or shine. Wow. And this was back in the days when trash trucks did not have this hydraulic arm. Oh, no. You're using your shoulders. And they didn't have a limit on how many cans or how many items they would put out on the street. And he's not 25 the whole time. And they wonder why my dad now is in the hospital and he can't walk. You know, his joints. So, anyway, um, yeah. 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 Um, so, I retired my parents. Which is... And I went back to... I went to work. And uh, I waited another 15 years before my pension would kick in. Hmm. And my pension kicked in, and then I started a charity. Because I didn't have to drain a charity for an income. Um, I want to touch significantly yeah. on the charity. One more thing about... Um, the substance issue, and I talked to Bill Lee about this too, and Bill is mm-hmm. his own character, of course. But when you're an athlete, there's a certain amount of calibration that has to take place that even if you are not fully in control, yes. you're aware chemically that if you are, for instance, you had leg issues because of the injury that you had in high school. Exactly. So you were on painkillers. Yes. So now you're on painkillers, you gotta take something else to counter that. Mm-hmm. Then if you take that, you gotta take something to get down so mm-hmm. that you're right level at the game. If you were just if a person was just using one substance, that's one thing. But the cocktails of it, I, I would just think that that would be so difficult to handle uh, from a mental, chemical, emotional point of view because it's, it's just everything is, can I get in equilibrium today so I can go up and get two hits today? Well, you just want to feel okay. Yeah. Okay. See, drugs are a, a, a disease of the feelings. Yeah. And the one thing that we don't know much about as human beings and we have the most of is feelings. Yeah. You know, and that's in all state, whether you're doing drugs or not. Yeah. Um, and so mine was, uh, the fact that, you know, I was, I was not well educated. I mean, I didn't go to college. I was not a good student in high school. I did just enough to get by. I was a D student. Okay. So just to be a D student, you gotta be pretty smart just to be a D student just to sure, get by. Sure, sure. You know, so I did just enough to get by because I knew I had to get a professional career. And if I failed, I was not going to play. Mm-hmm. So I did just enough to get by. And that's just kind of student. I just was not a student. That's just not the way my brain works. Now my brain works in a lot of other ways, but from an academic standpoint and all that stuff and all I, that's not me. Yeah. You know, if I had a choice, I wouldn't have gone, but. That you do what you do, but the problem is we are really not feelings based, not feelings based, but feelings prepared people in society because it's not what we're taught. Yeah. We're taught math, English, you know, science, mm-hmm. history, those kind of things. Nobody teach you about guilt. Nobody teach you about resentment. Nobody, I mean, you learn those things on the street. Yeah. You know, um, but now when you top, couple that with drug use and alcohol and all of these other types of chemicals, what you're basically dealing with is a, a disease of avoidance. You're avoiding what's really going on because I got a knee problem. Okay. Mm-hmm. My knee hurts. I take this medication and this medication does not have an effect on anything else on my body but that left knee. Mm-hmm. That's a bunch of crap. It's affecting every part of you. It just takes away the pain in your knee. Now, 
Does that mean your knee is better? No, it doesn't. It just means that you don't feel what's going on with it. So is the knee getting better? No, it's getting worse. Because now I'm running on it and it's injured. Yeah. So same I'm, with cortisone, same with anything. I'm making it worse. Yeah. But the mind is telling you what? That's not happening. Yeah. It's telling you something else. And that's why when you use a drug, the mind is telling you that what you're feeling or what you're going through is not happening, and it is. Mm. And you take this drug for years, and every drug has a half-life. So I can give you uh, some drugs today, and how much is going to be released in your system? Not all of the 7 milligrams or 5 milligrams. Yeah. Maybe half. So I go to sleep. Now I think... It's out. No, there's still lingering two and a half milligram or whatever in your system because your system just does not, everybody's system is different. Yeah. So now there's a carryover when you take drugs tomorrow. You take it in this amount, you're thinking that's all you have. No, you got that plus a little bit from yesterday. And now you do that for years and years and years. And now you go into detox for 20 days. And people think that you're clean. No, it doesn't mean you haven't used for 20 days. You're not clean. Mm. So that's why they encourage you not to make serious decisions and choices in the first year, especially relationship choices. Yes. In the first year, because you're really not clean yet. So now I can sit here and say, I'm pretty damn clean now with 31 years. So how does one ultimately kick it? As from personal experience and from three decades as a counselor, how do you finally make it happen? What does it take? What I said earlier. Yeah. You get back to the point that when you realize I'm safe. Sandbox. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta go back. Hmm. It's interesting. We had a conversation, um, the other day and you were talking about the relationship that you had with your wife mm -hmm. and that uh, it was interrupted for quite a while sure. and then you came back and chatted with her had a dinner or whatever yes yes and uh she looked at you incredulous mm -hmm. because you were a different person because you right. had feelings mm -hmm. and i was able to express them yeah i was able to speak about them. process guilt process shame or uh, process positive feelings. just able to talk and talk openly about who you are because there we go, sandbox. You feel safe. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? You feel safe with yourself. See, I got rid of all of the things that was pulling me down, that was tearing me apart. You know, the people that were throwing the guilt at me, the people that were not supporting me, the people that weren't lifting me up, the people that weren't there for me, the people that I could not trust. Okay? I got rid of all of them. So once I got rid of all of those negatives, mm. I felt safe. And I started to hang I, I got better playmates. I, I started hanging around with better playmates, playgrounds. Yeah. Okay. So I felt safe. So I can now go to Karen, this lady that I could not go to years ago, and talk to her from a real standpoint because I had things that I, I had to omit. I had to hold back on. I couldn't just open up and be that vulnerable. I could be vulnerable with her now. Yeah. And when I was doing that at Tony Roman, she was looking at me like, God damn, what is going on here? Another order of ribs, please. <laughs> yeah, really. Like, yeah. <laughs> so it, it helped her because she wanted that years ago 
and and you know she had some things she had to work out as sure. well, but right. you know we had both come to a place where this was now okay to go there, and we went there and we talked and it happened. So how did the rest of us get through this? Obviously, in your case, these were some extreme circumstances, but everybody's going to go through feelings. Everybody's going to go through guilt, shame, whatever it is. Is it just a matter of hope that you have spectacular parents who engage you every day? Is it a matter of you have to go up and accept the fact that five years of your life you're just going to be a mess and you got to work it out? We're all going to go through this at some time. Sure. How do we get there as painlessly as possible? You can't do it without pain. Yeah. And that's what people try to do. Yeah. Because they don't want to feel. Right, right. I guess I answered my own question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we can't get there without it. And that's the, that's the thing. You gotta go there. You gotta, you gotta pull the sword out and you gotta bleed a little bit. Mm. And you have to go there. And you know, uh, the ones that want to go there with you, those are the ones you stay with. It does not, you know, they, they, they don't fix it. They just say, okay, let's roll. It's an interesting thing, too, because you were equipped for this throughout. You maybe didn't realize it at the time, but, um, you know, I've had uh, conversations. Both I've had conversations. Mm -hmm. uh, other people have had conversations mm -hmm. with people like Tim and, and other ex-teammates mm -hmm. about how you were in those days. Mm -hmm. And that the perception from the outside is, oh, here's this guy who used, here's this guy who partied. Yeah, he's about himself. And everybody would say, no, 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 no. He was a sweetheart. He was a teddy bear. He was the nicest guy. Everybody missed you when you got traded. And I'm thinking to myself, and Amy brought this up when we were chatting about it too, this is you at your worst. And at your worst, you are the most beloved teammate. My God, what kind of capacity does this guy have when he gets himself together? How is it that one can feel pain, feel shame, be using be doing things that could be perceived from the outside as self-destructive and yet be a good teammate, be a good friend. You know, Tim said, oh, he helped me become a better man. That's, that's powerful stuff when you can be that way at 24 when you've got all this other stuff going along, let alone when you're self-actualized at 40 or 50 or 60. I, I equate it to the guys. I didn't know any of that. Yeah. At the time. You were just trying to be a good guy? I was... No, no, I mean the responses from Oh, others. yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know that because yeah. everybody was so codependently involved with the organization yeah. that they had to go along with what was being said. Right. Yeah. What's their, they, it's their they, livelihood. People yeah, do they, that. They're they selfish had to, sometimes. They had, they, had to, they had to keep their jobs. I get it. I yeah, get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Codependency is, pro is worse than drug addiction, uh. in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, people have this need to be accepted in spite of the facts, you know. Uh, the facts are saying, mm, but they, you know, they definitely want to stay in, yeah. stay, you know, involved and be a part of all that. But all the players really never said anything in my support. When I was going through these things, so I left. I, I felt very alone mm. uh, throughout the, uh, the career, throughout my entire career, because it was prevalent throughout baseball. You know, they all talk, and so I, I. That's why when I got out of baseball in a year after I got out of baseball, I was able to turn my life around because 
I don't have to put up with this shit anymore. Yeah. You know what I mean? I now have some control of what I can do and where I can go and who I can go with and how we go about doing it. So when I freed myself of that and I got a chance to uh, learn how to speak my emotions and share in meetings and so on and so forth, I was offered jobs. Mm. And I'm sitting here, I'm going, you want me to work at your treatment program? And I go, yes. And I'm, and I'm like, mm. I, was, I was kind of perplexed. I was kind of shocked at first. Huh. And then I went back to get, this was in Arizona. Yeah. You know, cause I stayed in Arizona two years after my, uh, my treatment was over. Um, and I bought a, I bought a home and I stayed with my aftercare program for two years. I sold my house. Oh, I gave my house to my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so I stayed there for two years. And then after two years was over, right when I was getting ready to go back to California, uh, the people at St. Luke's Hospital, uh, offered me a job. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And I'm like, really? Cause they had had me to come in, you know, former ball player, da, da, da. Uh-huh. Had me come in and, uh, and talk to the kids and, you know, that was in this program and, uh, so the buddy that had had me to do that was in the program with me, but he was already credentialed and counselor and all that. So he had me come in, so I did. So a couple of weeks later, he was going to go on vacation. He asked the hospital if I could come in and sit in for him for the two weeks, and they allowed it. And that was back then, you know, when things were much more lenient. Yeah. You know, and um, they let me come in just as a, you know, temporary, just a volunteer and do this and so I sat with the kids and we talked and we processed and we went through things and I didn't get deep with them or anything mm-hmm. but I just made the environment and I made the um, the group you know interesting and whatever and so when he got back they offered me like an intern type job or whatever and I'm sitting there and I'm blown away you know it's like I have no credentials and none yeah, of this yeah. and no bachelor's degree and blah 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 and uh, so I turned it down because I was leaving going back to California anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the next month or so, two months. And so then when I go to California, get set up and starting to go to meetings, follow up again, da, da, da. And uh guy stopped me after one of the meetings and said, let's go have uh, lunch. And he offered me a, a, a program manager's job at his sober living house. Hmm. And I looked up in the sky and I said, Lord, what are you saying? And Lord said, take the damn job. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. So that was June of uh, 88. Wow. September, I had enrolled in LA Mission College for their credential program. And that was, uh, that was what started their career. It's interesting, too, just to backtrack for one quick second. When you retired... The other thing that you did on the way to this was you went to work at the airport. Yes. And you that did. That was in Arizona. In Arizona. And, you know, making a few bucks an hour. Four. Four bucks. Twenty-five which you, cents an hour. Which you did not. You'd done well. Not only had you made money, but you were smart with your investing, which, God, that's a great lesson for all of us. I didn't need the money. Right. 
What and these were like five a.m. jobs. What yeah. made you decide to do that? Because I find that fascinating. I wanted to learn how to go to work and be like everyone else, like your dad, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, to some I, because I I didn't know that world. I didn't know that world. Yeah, and I realized that I had to become part of that world. Mm-hmm. And I realized that then I didn't want to just go and try to milk baseball and get a job as a coach, and because that's easy. Signing autographs, whatever. Yeah, that's easy. Yeah. I wanted to do something that I really had to work for. Yeah. And so I did. And I remember sitting there, uh, filling out the application. The guy comes, he brings me into his office. You know, they kind of go over the application for the job. And, uh, he's reading the application. So you got to put on all your former jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Outfielder, 77 All-Star game. <laughs> hey, I'm driving rent-a-cars at Avis. Yeah. Um, the airport to the rental car parking lot to the parking lot to the airport. You know, I'm, I'm shuttling them. So he looks and, you know, they, they have this, 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 uh, section on there where you got to put your former salaries, your former <laughs> income, and this dumbass question, how much money do you want to make? <laughs> you, 1.5 you, a year. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I put down like 70,000 or something. Crap. Yeah. It was stupid, but I can remember him sitting there reading the app, and I'm sitting in front of him just like you and I, and he gets down to the former jobs, and he reads the former jobs, he reads the former incomes, and and I can remember him looking up over his glasses <laughs> like this. <laughs> Alice is making the best face ever, which I wish was a video podcast. Yeah. yeah. And he looks over his glasses at me and he goes, Do you want to invest in the company? <laughs> no, man, I'm fucking Yeah. I wanted to know what it was like to bring a lunch and sit with the guys in the break room. Mm. Never done that. Did that help you as your counseling career got underway? Obviously, it helped me set. as my human career. Oh. Because we as pro ball players, we're not human. How so? We're treated different. Yeah. We're lazy. You know, people do things for us. Yeah. And we get out and we still want people to do stuff for us. Once you're retired or whatever. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. It's like me and my buddy, my, my, my business partner right now, Colin. We talk about it all the time. We're recruiting these guys for past pros. I know I'm doing a plug for it. No, no, we want but, to talk uh, about. Past, I find past pros to be great. You know, we uh, we're recruiting these guys. You know, that've been former ball players and former pro athletes and da da da. And they don't want to do a damn thing but collect money if they can. Uh, and everybody else do the dang work for them. Yeah. And you know, and I'm like, no, that's not the concept or the reason. We started this. We started this to teach you how to do this yourself instead of going through a third party to make that happen. Hmm. So, you know, uh, I just wanted to be normal. And I can remember my mom telling me years ago when I was saying this, when I was with the Expos and other teams, I said, Mom, I just want to be normal. And I can remember her telling me, son, there's nothing normal about you. Hmm. And I didn't know what the hell she was talking about. Then... Well, I do now, and I do. I, and right after that, my career was over. I, I started to realize it. But she said, "There's nothing normal about you." I'm driving a Porsche. I got a Mercedes. Yeah. I got lowrider cars. You know that was my passion growing uh-huh. up in L.A. I have homes. I was. I bought her 
and my dad a three hundred thousand dollar home in nineteen seventy nine. So that means you know this house, you know, is probably three grand a month. You know, it was around twenty seven, twenty eight hundred a month. So you got to have utilities. You got to, I mean, you know. So I'm giving her eight grand a month. Yeah. To live on. I'm giving them eight grand a month to live on. Yeah. <sighs> so I mean, there's nothing normal about that hmm. at. 25, 26. No. <laughs> you grew up in a hurry in some way. In the 70s. Yeah. You know? What does one learn in 28 years of counseling? Everything that you're hearing from me now. Yeah. Peace. I'm at peace with me. And, you know, I don't have those needs to try to influence you or anyone else. Trick them to like me. I'm me. Yeah. And I don't have to try to sit here and fake like I like you if I don't like you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't, I don't have to do all that. And that's what I had to do years ago. And that's what a lot of guys still do to this day. Or, you know, well, I something. mean, you know, you know me as real as I can be. Yeah. You know, we've known each other now a while and the, it's been, it's, it's been the same. It's not like this. It's not up and down. Uh, but that's just the way we are. That's the way I am, John. And, and, I, and I actually love it because people perceive me now the way you said they were perceiving me on the team, mm -hmm. the players were. Yeah. But they tell me this now. Yes. Those yes. guys didn't tell me that. Yeah. You know, they, they, they might have felt it or said it or whatever to others, but they didn't say it to me. Yeah. So I never knew that. And I always felt alone and, 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 and out there. Uh, and you know, to this day, there's many of them I don't trust. Hmm. You know, you, it's a light, it's, it's something that's helped you personally. It's helped you grow as a person and all that, but it's obviously grounded in altruism. It's obviously grounded in helping other people. And you'll, you know, you encounter people in life, a friend or an acquaintance or whatever will say, ah, I'd really like to help people. Ah, maybe I'm going to go volunteer and go do this and they're going to do that. And for some reason, people can get stuck. Like, oh, I don't have the time or I don't know if I could do it or whatever. If you were trying to advise someone on, they want to actually perform acts of kindness. They want to be altruistic. They want to do that. How do you go about it? You made a life of it. How does one do that? Well, I don't know exactly what the answer would be to that other than the fact to just be yourself. Yeah. You know, and, and try to be as genuine with yourself as you possibly can be. And, uh, if they want to go there, I, I, they would have to put everything aside and go there like their life depends on it. And Les, Les Brown says this in his, uh, his motivational speech. He said, go there like your life depends on it because it does. Hmm. And my life depends on me staying and being this way. You know, it really does. It, uh, I, and, I, and I'm okay with that. And, and I don't like to you know, like I said, reach out and offer stuff. When people come to me, yeah. I'm compelled to give back. Okay, this is what it is. But otherwise, I'm going to play golf. I'm going to do this. And, sure. And enjoy myself. Uh, and, you know, I, I I wanted to do something after my counseling career was over. I still wanted to do something and giving back. And that's why I kind of found a, a way to, to mow lawns for seniors that are disabled. Uh, because I knew... I could counsel someone for months and then go back and do the same damn thing. 
Okay. Yeah. And they'll come back to me maybe four or five, six years from there, and they go, you know, I'm, I'm better now. Great. I, I, I remember a lot of things that you told me. Wow. I had a friend of mine just, we had lunch just the other day, and he said, man, I remember coming to you for my marriage and, and asking you to help me and my wife and do counseling. And like, first of all, I didn't want to work with them because they're my friends. Yeah. I don't, I don't counsel friends. Yeah. I know what hat to wear. If I got on the friend hat, I keep on the friend hat. Yep. I don't do that because, you know, there's a boundary. You don't, you know, you value this as a friendship. It hurts because you can't give them what you have to help them. But then again, I realize and I've learned that when you overstep that boundary, you sever what you had. So you got to ask, what's more valuable? The valuable is to be true to them. That this is more important than that. You go do whatever you got to do with whomever else to get your counseling or whatever and realize that you have a friend in me. That you're not alone. Yeah. You have a friend in me. Yeah. You don't have a therapist in me. <laughs> you know, but you have a friend in me. And that's good to know because there's a lot of folks that I don't, you know, I got better. I didn't have to go back to. Because I never really made those types of friendships. Hmm. So it, 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 you know, it's not clean cut. It's not no one answer. It's just, you, you, you gotta, you gotta have, Healthy herb boundaries. You never have perfect boundaries. Yeah. And I'm not going to sit here and say that those friendships, some of them didn't, you know, fluctuate a little bit. Yeah. But you got to be healthier. Healthier means every day you're going to try to get better at something. You're not going to get perfect, but you're going to get better at something. Or you try to better something, you know. Uh, so it's hard. It's, 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 it's challenging. But... I usually end the podcast by asking the uh, guest for like a life tip or a nugget of wisdom. This has literally been an hour, eight minutes, and 37 seconds of entire life tips. So I, I think we're good. But um, it's, Well, thanks. Uh, thank you for asking me. You, uh, I'm happy to call you a friend. I'm proud to call you a friend. And I'm, and I'm, same here. Thank you. You've been nothing but a... But a gem. Thank you. Yeah, buddy. And I'm happy for, uh, for everything that's, uh, gone your way and, uh, I admire you. I admire what you do. It's been, it's been nice to, to get a chance to do this. I, I'm, I'm really glad to hear what you were saying about the guys saying what they said. Yeah. You know, I, I just wish that I had known that then or they, I, I, I just felt like no one ever fought for me. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't want somebody to go and fight for me. Even though Bill Lee did what he did with Rodney, I wanted that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I didn't want to quit. <laughs> I didn't want to quit the team or anything. Yeah. But I wanted that. I, you know, uh, but I never got that. Uh, it, it, it's, it's always nice to now to be asked to come back to a place that you've been. It is. You know, and there was a time when that wasn't happening. Yeah. You know, and, so now I see it happening, and I remember the first time that I was asked to uh, go to uh, to uh, an event with the Angels, and Dick Williams was there. Mm. Um, and this was after baseball um, was over, and I used to really deal with a lot of anxiety issues. 
you know, I'd, I'd start to sweat, and I'd only start to sweat here. Yeah. Up. Yeah. Here and all that. But, and I was sitting at this table, and Dick was at the table, and, you know, and all these baseball people around, and this was like four years after I retired. Dude, I started sweating profusely. I mean, just wow. this anxiety attack just came over me. I felt that I was around a whole bunch of unsafe people. Hmm. Not your sandbox people. They didn't. Not it. at all. Yeah. That's interesting. And I had to get up and go to the bathroom, and I get like that from time to time when I'm around folks. A lot of folks that, I mean, and it was really bad. I mean, we're in a suit and tie. Oh boy. Yeah. And I mean, it's bullets. Yeah. And it was because of the environment. Uh, I get the fuck out of here. Yeah. And I ran. Hmm. Well, you know what though? It's interesting about what you said that you wished that those, that your teammates and people had said to you the things that you now know. Maybe that's a takeaway that aside from everything else and aside from being righteous and aside from helping people and all that, maybe if you love somebody, just tell them, idiot. Just say, hey, I really appreciate you, whether you're a friend or a partner or whatever. I feel like no harm has ever come of that, that if we just tell other people how much they harm need to Harm does us. come from that for certain people that they feel like they're not ready to be vulnerable. That's fair. That's a fair point, too. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. That's true. And that's what was happening at that time. They could not go there yeah. because it left them not out there, exposed. Hmm. Uh, being vulnerable is a risk. Okay, it's a it's a risk and a choice and a choice and a chance you got to take. Yeah. But like I said, you 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 got to say, well, hey, look, you know, you're worth that. You know, and uh, I want to go there. I want to do that. Yeah. And uh, then you go do it. And so it just didn't happen. Now, there's some beloved guys on that team. Larry Paris, I love Larry Paris to death. I know. I, I Can you sit dude, down with him? What a treat. Um, that dude, that. I mean, you know, and you would think, you know, guy coming from Haines City, Florida, you kind of see Larry as a white dude, da, da, da. I never got that. Mm. I never got that racist or feeling of uncomfortable, not from him, not from his family, nah. Uh, Jerry White, another one. Loving to death. Yeah. Um, my first roommate in baseball ever. Those two guys, you know, some people say you just can't do no wrong. Yeah. I just feel that way. Cause I, we've never, never an inkling. Hmm. Out of all that. Now, I, I played with some guys that were straight up racist. I believe it. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And we, we see them in around today, you know, but, I didn't know anything about racism. I want you to hear this. I did not know anything about racism going into play professional. I grew up in a liberal California. Yeah. Okay. I didn't have that. So, you know, other guys like Camardi and, you know, guys that come from the South and all that. They can sit there and talk to this white boy this and this white boy that. They can talk. I never even had the permission to say those kinds of words. Wow. You know, in the locker room, and you white boys, y'all, mother, yeah, yeah. I never, I, no, that's just not a part of me. So, but these guys grew up Birmingham, Alabama, and places like that. They had to fight segregation, and uh, I did shit. I went to Crenshaw High. I had yeah. a car. Yeah, but, you know, yeah. I'm a star football player and baseball player and all this stuff in high school. 
we didn't have that. We didn't have that. And I come in, I'm watching all these guys, I'm watching the way they act, and I'm watching the way they do it. I'm sitting back and I'm going, really? And so when they get into those types of mo I didn't really know how to act. I want to go hide. I want to go somewhere. Hmm. But that's just where I was. All right, I'll give you one more. Um, so interesting political times we live in, and yes. you and I off the cuff talk about politics a lot. Not, we're not going to go too far that down down that road, but here's how I'm going to go about it. You are an athlete today. You're in your prime. You're 24, 25 years old. Everything is happening now. You've got the Michael mm -hmm. Bennett's. You've got the Kaepernick's. Not so much in baseball, though. Mm. And it's very hard to transpose your current brain to your 25-year-old body. But mm. somehow you've been given the magical ability to have all the life wisdom that you have and to be a five-tool beast on the field at the same time. Right now, you're 24, 25 years old. Are you kneeling before ball games? Are you going out there and giving press conferences? How are you going about reconciling the athletic world that you live in with the state of affairs in the world today, now that you are aware of everything that's going on? I could kneel. Mm -hmm. If I, you know, have what I have now, I could kneel yeah. then. Yep. Because what you're kneeling for is not what's being said. Mm -hmm. You know, this is not about the military. It's not about, of course. yeah, it's it's about how many little kids are being shot and killed and injustices on the street and da da da. That's what it's about. It's not, it's not about what the other side argument is. Yeah. But then again, the codependent side of it won't allow you to do it or the, the perceived threat that if you were to do it, you would lose something. Yep. You know, um, that's the thing that really, really scares you. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and, you know, we can sit and talk about it, but fear, you know, fear that I'm going to lose something that I have or fear that I'm going to not get something that I want. Of course. Okay. That is the most compelling and most powerful emotion that we have uh, that, that controls us. And it really is the one that fuels codependence mm. uh, because of, I'm going to lose something or I'm not going to get something. And that's where the problem comes in for the people that are making the choice. Because the, what, what Kaepernick is doing is huge. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, I mean, it's really huge. But look at the risk he took and the, and the sacrifice that he made. And you can't sit here and say that he does not deserve to play. He deserves to maybe be in a conversation with in regards to what he did. But God damn it, don't take away his livelihood. Of course. And that's what basically is happening. And that's the scary part about that. Um, but I, me personally, I'm the kind of guy that kind of mm, sits high and looks down. I'm not saying I'm God or no, anything. I but I want to look down on the situation and see what's really going on before I, you know, before I uh, make a, uh, a choice or decision, and then uh, I, I'll, I'll I'll do that. And 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 I'm not the kind of guy that feels like if if I do this, it's gonna be the end of my life. Mm. I don't have that power. I don't have that control. To the, all I can say is, <clears throat> I've learned how to get back up again. Mm. You know, and, and 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 that's what I know. I've fallen down many many times, and but I I I have this 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 determination to get back up. 
You said I was going to get back up and run. I'm just going to get back up. <laughs> you know, Sean Lightly. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to tip a little bit. But uh, I, I will get back up again. And and that, and and me and my wife, we go through that because she, you know, she's a sweetheart, but you know, she has her 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 fears about things, and that's 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 the stuff that she brought to the table. Mm-hmm. That's hers, mm-hmm. okay. And I just try to let her know with mine, honey, we're going to be okay. We're going to get through this. Uh, we don't have the money. We'll get the money. Yeah. I'm not going to rob a bank. We're just going to get the money, but I will go out here and go to work. Fuck, I cut grass. Yeah. I'm not too goddamn uh, proud of myself to not go out and cut a, cut a lawn. Uh, I know I'm doing it charitably, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I won't, you know, cut grass for, for a dollar. Mm-hmm. My grandmother used to always say, you know, you're going to dig a ditch, go get your tractor. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. She said, yeah. and that's all I do. I'll just go get a ride more and whatever. I'll make the money. I'm not too proud that way. I'll go to work. That's why I went to work at Avis, driving a rental car. Absolutely. Outside of the rental car facility was my Mercedes. Amazing. I'm driving a Mercedes to a $4.25 hour job. Because I needed the job. I needed to learn what that meant, okay, what that was about. But I've always been okay, you know, in terms of existence and, you know, fun, fun resources and all that. And as long as I'm alive, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to do something. This has all been great. Ellis Valentine, you're a gentleman and a scholar, and I appreciate you. Thanks, John. I really ask, uh, appreciate you asking me to do this because yeah we could be doing other stuff there you go (laughs) 